I have a friend who loves to post the same thing on social media every year right after Halloween. Maybe you've seen it before. It's a popular picture on the internet. It's a picture of a man stumbling out of a cave with a microphone in his hand, and he's in a suit, and the caption reads, Christmas is coming. Michael Buble emerges from his cave. Every time I see that picture, I can't help but think of John the Baptist. This picture of Michael Buble and John the Baptist are indeed rather strange. Both involve awkward-looking men out in the desert. Both are central figures this time of year, but for very different reasons. Michael Buble is perhaps the most recognizable figure for Christmas music, but John the Baptist is the central figure of Advent. Every year during these four Sundays preceding Christmas, we come face to face with this gruff and uncomely man named John. In fact, the middle two Sundays are especially devoted to him. John is essential to the story of Jesus because he's the hinge of the entire Bible. He has one foot in the Old Testament and another foot in the New Testament. As one writer put it, John is the last cataract in the stream of the Old Testament prophets. He's the quintessential and climactic prophet. And you might hear this word prophet and be thinking of someone like a fortune teller, uh, someone who primarily tells the future. But that's not what the Bible means by prophet. As we look at this man, John, this morning, Uh, Through this lens of a prophet, I want us to focus on two word pictures that get at the essence of what a prophet was to be about. Sirens and spotlights. The prophets of the Old Testament were both sirens and spotlights. And in our passage this morning, we see John as the greatest siren and spotlight of them all. So look with me at Matthew chapter 3 as we explore these two images First, how is John a siren? Well, sirens are meant to get your attention, and John does just that, both in what he does and in what he says. Verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. We know him as John the Baptist, and Matthew introduces him uh, as such. But you'd have to go all the way down to verse 6 to see John actually baptizing. And that's because for Matthew, John's baptism was not nearly as important as his message. According to Matthew, John the Baptist is first and foremost John the preacher, John the prophet. He's certainly looked the part of a prophet. In verse 4, we're told that he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And for us today, uh, that sounds awfully weird. But back in the first century, Jews would have unmistakably picked up on what that was a reference to. In 2 Kings, the most famous prophet, one of the most famous prophets of the Old Testament was Elijah. And we are told that he wears this exact same thing. And the prophets throughout the centuries would become uh, associated with this sort of attire. But there was something else about this man, John, who would have gotten people's attention. Isaiah had foretold of a prophet that was going to come and announce what all the prophets had been anticipating, the coming of God to his people. 
Some even believe that Elijah himself would return from being taken up into heaven by chariots of fire. He was going to return out in the wilderness by the river Jordan where he was taken up. And now all of a sudden this man John shows up on the scene looking a lot like Elijah and he's out in the same place that Elijah was taken up into heaven and it got people's attention. Well, what about his message? Well, it was every bit as loud as his clothing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. With just these few words, John summarizes the entire message of the prophets before him. And three things stand out in particular. First, John's message centered around this one central command, repent. Presbyterian minister James Montgomery Boyce told the story of the time that he asked once at children's Sunday school uh, what repentance meant. And a little boy spoke up and said, repentance means being sorry for the bad things that we've done. And all the children started nodding their heads, except for one little girl who, who raised her hand and spoke up and said, no, it means being sorry enough to quit. Dr. Boyce said this little girl was far closer to the true nature of repentance. What exactly is repentance? What does it mean? Well, we get a good look at what repentance really is in our confession of sin that we say every Sunday. It says a few things. First, uh, repentance is uh, acknowledging our manifold sins and wickedness. This is a crucial first step. It is to rightly see all of our words and our actions and our inclinations that go against God's law as they really are. We acknowledge that all our motivations and behaviors that go against his will are wicked. We see sin for what it really is, falling short of God's ideal, going beyond his good boundaries, a, a brokenness that resides in our hearts that makes us want to rebel against his authority. This is a difficult but essential first step in repentance. We see sin for what it is, and then we call it out to God and to others, saying that we see it in ourselves. But we don't stop there. We uh, do something else in the confession. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. We are heartily sorry for the deeds we have done. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us, and the burden of them is intolerable. Repentance involves being sorry for our sin, and that's a, a vital point. Repentance is not merely being sorry for the consequences of our sins. Far less is it sorry that we were caught in our sin. Repentance involves sorrow for the sin itself. It's to hating sin for what it is and bewailing the very thought of it. True repentance involves a crushing burden every time a thought of the old life comes into our minds. Finally, true repentance involves a radical turn. The confession tells us that it entails forgetting all that is past and turning to live in newness of life. Repentance it involves a radical, once-for-all break with sin. It involves holistic, decisive action. You see, true repentance was not like Lot's wife back in Genesis. When she decided to leave for Sodom, she turned back longingly. 
Repentance is not turning towards God and having a backup plan. It doesn't turn towards God all the while stuffing all the pleasures and trinkets of the old life in our pockets for the journey ahead. Repentance is not turning toward God with our feet, but having our hearts remain back in the old life. No, true repentance involves a complete turning of heart, mind, and will away from sin and towards God. So sin involves acknowledging our sin, or repentance involves acknowledging our sin, confessing it, bewailing it, and turning from it. And John was a siren who got people's attention because his command to repent was just like all the prophets before him. But a second aspect of his message was important. He preached this message of repentance with a gravity and a sincerity because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. This phrase, the kingdom of heaven, or its equivalent, the kingdom of God, is a phrase bursting with meaning. If the main response of the prophet's message was repentance, then the substance of the prophet's message was the coming of the kingdom of God. This message of the kingdom of God involved this. It was that God rules the world and that he is on the throne and that each of us have committed cosmic treason by denouncing his reign in the world. And so the prophets proclaimed repentance and they looked forward to the day that this king would come and establish his perfect reign and judge the world in righteousness. Too often people envision the prophets as fortune tellers. They associate prophecy with crystal balls. But in the Bible, prophecy is, is less about foretelling and more about forthtelling. The prophets are not so much psychics as they are prosecuting attorneys. One author has put it that the prophets were God's covenant enforcement officers. Their job was to tell God's people to forsake idolatry and to turn and live according to the principles of the kingdom. That was the clarion call of the prophets, to proclaim the truth about God and his kingdom. The truth that God deeply cares about how you and I live. The truth that he is the only and true king and that he doesn't sit idly by as the world is ravaged with sin. And the truth that he will come again to judge. By telling the truth about God and his kingdom, the prophets, and John in particular, stand in absolute opposition to Satan. Christopher Watkin calls the message of Satan the noble lie. In reflecting on what happens in Genesis 3, he says this, On the surface, Satan wants even to reach her full potential, not to be held back by the artificial constraints of God's nannying. She, has made for, she was made for greater things, and it is time for her to start making her own decisions, time to take on the world on her own terms, time to be everything that she can be. Satan feeds Eve a false dream and encourage her, encourages her to follow her dreams. And in thinking that she's acting in her best interests, Eve is in fact slavishly doing the bidding of Satan and violating her own best interests. And that's the devilish genius of the satanic noble lie. 
But Watkin goes on to show just how different God and the prophets are compared to Satan's noble lie. He says, God's dealing with Adam and Eve is a striking contrast to the noble lie. The truth that God tells Adam and Eve is not safe or necessarily empowering at every step, but he gives it to them unvarnished. He tells them uncomfortable things, hard things, that may cause us to wonder why he's acting as he is, why he put the tree in the garden to begin with, but he never lies to Adam and Eve, even for their own good. Later in the Bible, God's prophets never get God's people to believe in something that is untrue in order to ensure a particular outcome, even if that outcome is a good one. God never sugarcoats the pill of sin or repentance. Hell is hard, but not hidden. Suffering is severe, but not shrouded. If someone comes to the God of the Bible, they may not like what they see, but they certainly have no wool pulled over their eyes. John proclaimed the hard truths of God and his kingdom, and he was a siren who got people's attention. But a third thing stands out about John's message, and that is that it differed in one important way from all the prophets that preceded him. Whereas they looked forward to the day that God would come, John stands up and says these words, the kingdom is at hand. Or literally the Greek says, the kingdom has arrived. The typical urgency of the prophets is ramped all the way up with John. It's now or never. The ax is at the tree root. The king is here. John's urgency was like a siren that got people's attention. But sirens do something more than just get people's attention, right? They're also meant to be a great service to us. One of my dear friends is the hardest sleeper that I know. I remember in college, it was exam week, and he was studying all week long and staying up late, and on the morning of one of his exams, he overslept and completely missed his alarm and his exam. I think all of us can relate to that, that fear in some capacity of, uh, all right, we're going, sorry about that. All of us can relate to this fear of oversleeping. Uh, but what made it all the more remarkable to me was that he had this incredibly obnoxious alarm clock. It was um, the loudest alarm clock that I've ever heard in my life. He was, a, he was a college basketball fan, and so it was this combination of crowds cheering and buzzers going off, and to make it worse, it had that famous basketball commentator Dick Vitale, who was famous for just shouting all the time, well, the alarm was him repeating his one-liners at the top of his lungs. And you put it all together, and it was just the most obnoxious alarm I've ever heard. And I wondered, how could anybody possibly fall asleep and not wake up with this alarm? Well, he did. And he suffered the consequences. But here's the point. Sirens, they're meant to help. All the misery and all the pain of that shrilling alarm, it's for our good. It's precisely because we're so prone to fall asleep that we need that little pinch of the alarm. 
Sure, in the moment, it's, it's unbearable, but let me ask you, if you were to uh, be able to ask those in London in the 1940s if they appreciated the sirens that alerted them to the air raids, what do you think they'd say? Well, what about those in the plains of the United States when they hear the tornado sirens going off? Are they not extremely grateful for these alarms? Despite the initial chill that goes down the spine, the simple fact is this, sirens save lives. And whatever momentary pain and terror we experience from the siren is only meant to serve as protection from something that is far worse. So let me ask you this morning, what is your response to the siren that John is sounding? I can think of three ways to respond. The first way is to uh, pay no attention at all to this alarm that's going off. You can dismiss with this whole notion of repentance and the kingdom of God. You can be kind of like those who uh, are back in the villages. While everybody's going out to John by the Jordan, they remained back in, at home with life going on as usual. And my friends, let me stop right here and say, there's a great risk of responding like this today. We live in a day unlike the first century uh, in Judea where we are now bombarded with information nonstop. And most of it claims to be of the utmost importance and urgency. In our cultural climate, people on every side are sounding the alarm all the time, are they not? You can hear people on the left and on the right and anywhere in between claiming that everyone else needs to wake up and get a grip of reality. And with all of that, it can be so easy for us to become so desensitized to any and every alarm. So how can we know which sirens, which alarms to listen to, if any at all? Well, here are a few thoughts to help you discern which th sirens to tune your ears to. First, beware of those who disregard any and every alarm. You see, nobody practically lives like that. Even those today who insist that all truth is relative, they're going to get upset and sound an alarm eventually. So unless you're prepared to never get upset when somebody betrays you or never call the police when somebody steals something of value to you, then it simply won't do to ignore every single alarm. The real question is, which alarms to listen to? So second, beware of listening only to alarms that have to do with this earthly life only. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus himself will say, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but not kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You've heard of the tyranny of the urgent. It can become so easy to be preoccupied with what's right in front of us that we neglect the weightier sirens, those that call us to think about our souls and eternity. Finally, beware of those who sound the alarm, but whose deeds do not match the words that they proclaim. The book of James warns those who merely listen to words but don't live in light of their own words. Such people are deceived, John, James says. True prophets live lives that match their message. And that was the case 
for John. Well, that's the first way that you could respond to John's siren call to repent. You can dismiss it all together. And if you are here this morning and that's where you are, please hear me. I beg you to reconsider. Think about what is most important. Slow down and step back and take stock of your life. There's another way to respond. You can be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 7 who came out to John, but they stayed at a distance. They were on the fringe. They heard about the call to repent, but they made certain presumptions that they believed excused them from their need to repent. They believed that they didn't need to repent because of their ancestral heritage. They were of the right crop of folks. They had the external form of religion, but they didn't have the internal reality. And John, hear this, takes them to task. He calls them broods of vipers. He uses biting irony, something that was really common with the Old Testament prophets, to denounce those who looked to their religion that was devoid of the internal substance. But as one scholar has said, such rhetoric always served to raise the consciousness of their vanity and hypocrisy so that they'd be nudged to repentance and restoration. My friends, if you've, have you heard this call to repent but have tried to get out from feeling the need to repent, to excuse yourself from it? Maybe presuming on some religious privilege like, like going to church or maybe that you've been baptized. Maybe you are presuming that you have the right family, and therefore you don't really need to listen to John's call. As Jeff preached a couple weeks ago, salvation does not come by proximity. Each one of us must repent ourselves. But finally, the third way to respond was those who heard John's call to repent and then got in the river. They confessed their sins and they turned from them. They went down into the water as a sign of their repentance. And as Martin Luther said as the first of his 95 theses, the rest of their lives was marked by this habitual turning from sin. So where are you? Are you back in the towns drowning out the call to repent? Are you on the fringe, excusing yourself maybe from this need to repent? Or are you in the river, confessing and repenting of your sins? Let me close by drawing your attention to what John says to those who actually came and went down into the water, confessing their sins. And it's the other image. It's very brief. John wasn't just a siren. He was also a spotlight. A spotlight is meant to cast light on someone or someone else, something else. Prophets before him had always put this light on God especially, but John does that and more. He puts it on the person of Jesus Christ. God come in the flesh. And he points to the one who's infinitely stronger than he is. Someone whose ministry is infinitely better than John's. Do you want to know what would have made the prophets astounded when God actually came to his people? Yes, they foresaw him coming with power and might to judge sin and establish justice, but do you know what would have made them amazed at how he came? He comes on the scene. And what does God do? He gets down in the water himself. 
He who had no sin of his own gets into the river and identifies with his people. He takes his people's sins upon himself and it shows that he will drown him in the process. God came this first time to bring justice so that we can escape the just punishment of our sins. He was a substitute that allowed sinners to go free and he rose to new life, indestructible life, so that he could pour out that life on his people through the power of the Holy Spirit. John knows that his ministry could never have measured up to Jesus' ministry. And you know what? He doesn't even care. He's glad to point the spotlight on Jesus Christ because John sees his own need for what Jesus alone can provide. My friends, heed John's call to repent. Turn from your sin. Bring to Jesus with empty hands except that has your sin in it and receive back from him everything for life and godliness. Amen.